Hello and welcome to this Life Changes podcast. You are now listening to one of our Sunday messages. If you'd like to know more about Life Changes, you can visit us on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. Now lean in and enjoy. It's an absolute, absolute privilege to be here. And uh, my name is Mark, and I'm part of the eldership and leadership team of Life Changes Church. If we haven't met, it's a great privilege to be here. I, I love it that we get to do this. I was at Tableview this morning and meeting friends and meeting new people, and then waved to them as I walked out, and I'm going to go be with our family in Milnerton. And I never imagined we'd be doing this. To be honest, it was never a grand plan. There was never a big strategy. No one stood on the mountaintop and saw Milnerton and Tableview and now God just graciously has led us to this place, and we're very grateful. But it's fun. And um, I grew up in church in a school hall in Glenwood High School. I was a DHS boy who got saved in Glenwood High School. That is an identity crisis right there, if you know anything about Durban. And, um, and, and yet God encou- encountered this living God in a school hall. And so for me, coming back at this morning, it's like, wow, this is... This is what I knew. This is what I know. This is something of this. And yet God continues to move, continues to graciously move his hand, graciously transform lives, graciously impact areas. And we're so grateful to his goodness and his kindness. But it is a big day today. It's not just because last night there was a soccer game, apparently. But there is a man with a measure of something called FOMO. Do you know what FOMO is? (laughs) FOMO is the fear of missing out. And it is his birthday today. And so we're going to phone him (laughs) and see. He's obviously interceding and praying, so he won't answer his phone, obviously. But uh, it's his birthday today at breakfast. What? It's Sunday. Oh, hello, Gabriel. How are you, buddy? Happy birthday. I'm I'm with all your best mates here, and they want to sing happy birthday to you, buddy. Happy birthday. Here we go. Happy birthday to you. <laughs> uh, Happy birthday to you. There we go. Happy birthday to you. There we go. Hey. He's just prophesying. Hold on. Just speak, Gabriel. Speak. I was saying it's a little off key, but it'll do. Thank you so much. Okay. Good feedback. Helpful feedback, Fruit of Champions. Have an amazing birthday, buddy. Proud of you guys. Love to Benjamin, eh? Cheers. Bye-bye. Let me do my day job. (laughs) Or your job. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All I could think about during worship was how I could use this trapdoor as a preaching analogy. I'm like, I want to disappear all of a sudden. Come on, somebody's got to do that thing, man. Oh, no. Feeling very naughty today. It's a problem. I'm really excited to be here and um, love what God is doing and feel greatly privileged to just be a part of it. And so we love you guys, love what God is doing here, and He's incredibly faithful and kind. And we are in this incredible series of Colossians and a new way and looking at how God presents this new way of living in four incredible chapters, all about Jesus, all about the gospel, the preeminence, the power, the perfection of Jesus in all things. He answers, I believe, in the first chapter, all the big questions of life. I I preached one preach about three weeks ago. I think it answered every important question there is in life in 30 minutes. It's pretty astounding, actually. I was impressed. And, um, 
but, but chapter 1 and the supremacy of Jesus has to be the most spectacular section of Scripture that if we allow it to grip us, if we would learn it off by heart, if we would recite it to ourselves, it answers every question like, who am I? Well, it explains Jesus, and when you know creation, Jesus tells us, God got down and said, let us make man in our image, and the only way to know who I am is to know who he is. So you want to know who you are? Get to know who Jesus is. And he says, why am I here? Well, you're here for one thing, to bring glory to God. And in bringing glory to God, he bestows honor, he bestows a story, he brings us us into the gospel story, and we get to partner in the trinity of a glorious story. It's spectacular. It answers questions, well, why is it all going wrong? What's the challenges in our world? Why are abortion bills getting passed? And why are there challenges in the world? Well, the Bible says there's this thing called sin. And actually, my sin. Stop shouting someone else's sin. The gospel says there was your sin, and your sin in the story was why Christ had to come fix the story. But he breaks into the story, pulls us into his thing. He says, well, there's one answer to the world. It's the supremacy of Jesus. And I'm not re-preaching that preach, but I just want to tell you, we don't have a sin problem in this world. We don't have a food problem. We don't have an economic problem. We have a supremacy problem. Because there's one thing that's called to be supreme in the name of Jesus, and that in the, na- in the hearts of every man, that's Jesus. And when Jesus becomes supreme in the hearts of presidents and doctors and economists, I promise you the world becomes a better place, a different place, something that looks more like heaven than earth. When Jesus takes the supremacy in our hearts. And so he's preaching not to the world, he's preaching to the church in Colossae and says, there's a battle for the supremacy of your hearts right now. There's a battle. In Cape Town, Church of Cape Town, book written to Cape Town and the believers in Cape Town, there's a battle for the supremacy in your hearts. And when you establish Christ as supreme in your hearts, watch the peace and the order and the kingdom of God begin to reign in all these things. It's an incredible, incredible thing. But I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to chapter 3 this morning. Is that all right? Some of you are like, oh, we can't do that. It's far too far. Taken five weeks just to do chapter 1. Now you want to stay with me. I'll look after you. It'll be okay. And I want to speak this morning about represent because I'm hip and cool. Represent. Some of you don't know what I'm doing right now. It's okay. It's okay. You stick with Gerard. He'll explain. Do you know, have you seen Gerard's on the board? 2001 was the Ducks of Seamount. How good are your eyes? You haven't seen, eh? Check 40-year-old eyes. They're still good. They're good. But I want to speak this morning. There's this, it's like the statement that, that if you're in a gang, you represent the gang and you have the tattoos and you do all those things. There's this radical thing that Paul speaks in chapter three. He presents what it is to have your identity in Christ and then to live a life that's representing Jesus, representing the gospel, representing your story. It's like in families, they would have things that there's an identity of in the family, but you would live out a life that represents that family. In Bunty's house, it would look like this. They would sit down for dinner, and they don't just say, thank you, Father, for our food. That's a normal family. In Bunty's house, thank you, Father, for our food. And they just, it's on, it's on. And then the sister comes, woo It's like, you don't have, this is, because that's their house. It's the identity in their house. It's to represent in their house. That's what you just had to do. Don't feel under pressure in your house. That was their house. There's some things in our house. I have three wild savages called Judah, Ben, and Daniel. They are incredible. They're my boys. 
They're my sons. I love them with everything. But they are wild. And, um, but we're a family, and that family's called the Van Pletsens, and there's some things that we do because we are the Van Pletsens, and there's some things that we definitely don't do. And yesterday morning, we thought we'd have a little sleep-in that looks like 6 o'clock, if you haven't had kids, just to bring you up to speed. And uh, we thought we'd have a little sleep-in until we heard three rhinos having a war downstairs. They're like rhinoceroses, seriously. It was, we didn't want to go downstairs. We thought, how did these get in? It's like, how could this be? The only thing we, but our children are there. We need to get our children out of there. There was noise. Pa, pa. You just hear the pa, pa. Think, what is that? Pa. Think, but our kids would never do that, you know? They fun blitzens. Until my wife goes downstairs, obviously, because they're runners. I sent her first. And, um, and our boys are jumping from one piece of furniture over there, about four foot, onto my lazy boy. You don't do that in our house, as they are trying to break and destroy the one piece of furniture that I get to enjoy. And there's a conversation that follows that, that we don't do that. We don't do that. Why? Because you aren't chimpanzees in the wild of the jungle. That is not your identity. You are not a chimpanzee. You don't jump across. You, you are not a wild animal from the middle of Africa. That is not your identity. Your identity is son. I thought they'd learned that, but obviously not. So my job is to help them and to remind them that you are representing us even if no one's watching. And by jumping from that piece of furniture, which you shouldn't be standing on, over tiles onto the couch and it banging against the wall every time you land. Although it is fun, it is not who you are. Not sure it's a perfect analogy, but I'm going to use it anyway. As I believe that something of what Paul is teaching the people in chapter 3 as we jump to him to, he spends the whole of chapter 1 just presenting the supremacy of Jesus. He, he just says, Jesus. No, forget everything else, Jesus. He goes in chapter 2 and he keeps presenting Jesus. He says, we are not just Jesus, but we become complete in Jesus. We become sufficient. He is perfectly sufficient for everything you could need. Jesus, chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he takes the first four verses again. And he says, this is who you are in Jesus. And then he begins to unfold what it means to represent to represent this family, this story, this household, the gospel, his, the goodness of God and lives. There's a representation story, and he does it so graciously, but I love, and you've got to see the picture. Too much of the church sometimes is, well, start to represent, and you'll get to Jesus. There's nothing in the gospel that's start living a life, and on living the life, you'll get Jesus. The only way to live the life is to see Jesus. That's why grace is the only currency that we can operate on. It's the only thing we call people to. And when you sit down with people and they don't know Jesus and you start to tell them how to do their marriages the Bible way, forget that strategy and show them Jesus. I'm being serious. When I, I've done weddings um, of people who, who don't know the king and, and had the privilege of doing that, I, I literally ambush them. It's embarrassing for my wife. They have to do three dinners with me. Come to my house, I'll show them how, what it means to represent with generosity and love, and I find three different ways to tell them the gospel. I tell them very little about marriage. Because I honestly believe to know marriage, you've got to know Jesus. And, and to find life, you've got to know Jesus. So he jumps into this. We're going to jump into Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, please. It's called living as those made alive in Christ, representing. 
Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator." Here there is no Jew, Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I pray this morning, God, as we share your word and have the privilege of doing it in community, I pray, Spirit of God, show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Not show us steps to do this life. Show me Jesus. And we read your word like no other this morning, King. We thank you, God. Amen. So I think we live in an age of identity crisis. I don't know about you. And um, parents are giving one-year-old kids opportunity to choose their gender. That's the world we live in. And it's only speeding up, and, and there's identities of, of nationalities, and people have moved most of their lives in different countries. So eventually what you have is, is an identity crisis going on. But we have the gospel. And the gospel says Christians are the one people in this world who shouldn't have an identity crisis. Shouldn't have an identity crisis because your identity isn't rooted in anything of this world. Nothing. It's rooted in the blood of Jesus. And I'm not condemning things. This book is not written to the world. This book is written to the church. These mandates and challenges are not written for us to go and throw them at the world. They are written to us to deal with us to remind us who we are so that we can call. And as we represent, we represent from a place of understanding not just who Jesus is, but our identity in Christ. It's super, super important that when my kids go to places, whether I'm there or not, whether people are watching or not, that they act in a manner, they behave in a manner that brings glory to God first and foremost and secondly represents something of our family. And it's, it's not about, oh, don't embarrass us. It's not about that. It's about bring glory to God. And my life is there as a mandate to bring glory to God. And, and there are these things in our lives that shout of what you call to represent. Your culture will shout at you. Well, you have to represent this. 
And it'll start conflicting with your Christianity, with your knowledge of Christ. Your culture will fit with that. Your career starts demanding things and, and the challenge you start off in, in a career that starts off level and your ability to influence is minimal, but then you become a Lani and, and you're 40, 50 years old and you're in seats of power and you can start making decisions for right or wrong, decisions that will look good on balance sheets but might not look good before a glorious, magnificent father. It's the reality. They'll start to conflict. What about status or education or peer pressure and peers or your past? as a determining factor on your identity, starts to shout and starts to want to fashion your future. And Jesus says, no, but I've paid, done, washed, clean. Your identity's changed. This is the gospel. And Paul's just presenting the gospel and your looks and all these things start to want to fashion. They want to shout. They want to create identity crisis in your life because a Christian with an identity crisis as a Christian ineffective for the gospel. Just want to tell you that's what it is. We don't get the luxury because we have an enemy. I've got to know who Sodom on. I've got to know what king is on my throne in my life. I've got to know that behind that there's a power story. And when I trust that and I begin to walk in that, even when the challenges come, I can never get a journey that looks like bringing glory to God, even if it doesn't always bring immediate happiness to my story. That's called being a disciple of Jesus. And... Um, our identity is wrapped up, and Paul, in the first four verses of this amazing scripture, presents five times what it is and what our identity is. He says in verse 1, with Christ, verse 1, where Christ, verse 3, with Christ, verse 4, when Christ, verse 4, with, Christ, with him. If you want to understand what Paul's saying, Paul's saying it's all in Jesus. It's always all been about Jesus. And before I start telling you how to walk this out, because actually he's dealing with baby Christians in a town that didn't have 2,000 years of Christianity. They don't know what it is to walk out Christianity. He's writing from his prison cell. Before I even start to speak that stuff to you, I want to tell you it's still all about Jesus. He's just done two chapters about Jesus. He's only doing four chapters. You think, Paul, you've done enough. No, he hasn't. Because the only power there is to navigate a life, a soul, a heart that conflicts with these identity voices that are shouting and calls people back to sonship and daughtership, if that's a thing. Daughtership, is that a word? We're going to go with that. <laughs> is who Jesus is and who I am in him. It's the only thing that matters. It's the loudest voice in your life and the greatest rudder in your story, even if you don't know it. Because something is influencing the rudder of your life. And I want to give you a few points out of this simple scripture. First one, we get a new starting point. We get a new starting point. Number one, first one, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Who feels raised every morning? It's like, I've been raised by Christ. Every morning you wake up and go, I, I feel raised from anyone. Like every morning you wake up just with the, Dead to life, raised feeling. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. Now we can move forward because actually what this scripture is telling you is one, I've got to know and I've got to believe the word of God that it is done. You have been raised. It's not saying you are being raised. One day you'll be raised. Keep singing, Gerard. One day you'll be raised. No, it's not that. You raise me up. Not that. So you have been raised up. It's that. That's what he's saying. Now, we can read that and go, mm, cool information. If that doesn't become revelation and truth to my soul, that with Christ and his story, God has mystically somehow raised me from the dead. 
forget what the power of the gospel is in my life. It's not about how I feel. I don't feel. Yesterday, I was filled with the Holy Ghost. Tomorrow, today, I'm not sure. I felt great yesterday. Today, mm, it's not about that. We are believers, which means what you believe determines how you live. Right believing will determine right living. And so what I believe is important and what Paul needs us to get is it is done. It's done. You don't get to opt out of that package. And second, he says, where Christ is seated. Part of that and part of a new starting point is we get a new perspective in Christ. A new perspective on everything. About what we do on Sunday morning, obviously. No, on everything. See, because when I wake up and my kids are jumping from a cupboard to a thing, there's something that rages inside of me. Something that doesn't look like Jesus or God. Something that's actually about my embarrassment. I haven't done a good parenting job. Or protection. Oh, flip, I've worked hard for that furniture. Or, and God says, actually, it's about none of that. I want you to bring glory in their story for the kingdom. That's what the role of a parent is. So it determines your parenting. Because I'm seated with Christ. It brings an authority and a power into my story I didn't have before. Please understand, we weren't powerful before we met Jesus. It doesn't matter how much money we had in the bank. It doesn't matter how much victories we had in our story. Paul had hundreds before his Damascus Road encounter. And from a prison point, his least powerful position on this earth, he writes a book telling them, you are seated with him in the throne of majesty. That's who you are. He's just reminding him. He's writing from a prison cell. It doesn't sound like, Paul, what authority do you have? No, in the light of eternity, in what really matters, and in the things of heaven that are greater than the things of earth, I'm calling you church. Changes our perspective. And part of that is we get powered up. He says, seated at the right hand of God, the position of power, the seat of power. That's where Jesus is seated because Jesus is seated there because I'm washed by Jesus' blood. I get pulled into a story where I get to sit in a seat of power. I get to walk with a new authority in this life. It doesn't mean every word I speak will come to fruition. It means I have access to authority. And as I grow in my authority, it will happen when I grow in my sonship which is a growing in my understanding of my identity in Christ. It's a stumbling into. It's the grace of God taking activation in my life. It's foreign to this world. It's different. It's radically different. And Paul just says, guys, I'm running from a prison cell, so trust me, this is not because it's all dandy in my life. I'm calling you to represent. I'm calling you to know who you are. And I'm going to spend some years of my life in prison, and Paul probably spent five to six years of his life in prison. But I'm telling you, there's no greater position than to be in Jesus, with Jesus, with him. Secondly, in verse 2, he tells us we get a new focus. Simple, simple, just the Bible. I, what I love about Colossians, I literally could preach on any scripture in the book, like anyone, because it's all about Jesus. He says in verse 2, set your minds on things above, not earthly things. How do we grow? How do we do move forward? Well, it's not by doing whatever we feel like and whatever we determine and going, well, there's no focus in my life. No, everybody has a focus. Whether you determine that focus or not is the issue because you're moving somewhere. Even neutral gear is a somewhere movement because the world's not stop turning and life's not stopping, time's not stopping. 
And I don't know if you've ever had the, the challenge with focuses. Yes, well, everyone, even if it's not a good, it's a challenge to our focus of often we want to focus by looking back. Somehow we think we can navigate a car by looking backwards. I don't know if you've ever watched that footage of they used to do a race where guys would, rev the whole race was in reverse. Have you ever watched? It's classic. You should watch it. It's a great example for people without focus who keep their eyes fixed on their past because they just crash every time. It's what happens. doesn't matter how skilled you are. I love of this same verse, this is what the Passion Translation says. It says, yes, feast on all the treasures of the heavenly realm and fill your thoughts with heavenly realm realities and not with the distractions of the natural realm. Oh, now we're talking realms, Mark. That's like very spiritual, too much for me, just whoa. No, that's what's happened. That's what salvation is. Salvation is a heaven conquering earth reality. Salvation is death to life. Salvation is very much heavenly realm stuff. And you get pulled into that. And why earthly things or anything where our eyes are fixed on Jesus, whether it's money, whether it's possessions, whether it's family, whether it's our children, I promise you anything where Jesus isn't our focus, our world starts to become smaller. I'll guarantee it. You know what? Salvation comes from the word yasa, which interprets as a spacious place. The essence of salvation is spaciousness. To walk with Jesus, to have the blood of Jesus touch on my life, is to keep bringing spacious to my heart that wants to keep defaulting to small. And I want to keep defaulting to safe. And I want to keep defaulting to secluded reality. And the gospel keeps breaking open my heart and say, there's more for you. I want to bring you to spacious places. But it, it challenges us and he says, set Set your mind. The problem is not many people have mixed concrete. Good point. Say amen, Mark. Just good point. Thank you, Bunty. I've mixed concrete a few times in my life, not always successfully. And you mix it and you keep throwing water and you can keep mixing and as long as it's still soft, you can keep putting water and eventually there's going to be a threshold. But as long as you keep mixing water, you can keep that thing sort of alive. But once that thing sets... If your foot's still in there, you can add as much water as you want. You can use anything you want. The only way out is to break it. So set your mind. Take your mind that defaults to everything and set it. Set it. Set it. There's got to be a setting. I've walked with people in church who for 50 years have never allowed their mind to be set on the promises of God. Set your mind. Take your eyes off the circumstances, situations, realities. Our market's reality. No, what's reality is the blood of Jesus. That's reality. Set your mind on Jesus, on things above. Paul's in prison, and he's saying, church, set your mind. Set your mind. Opportunities are going to come. Things are going to take your focus. Good things. Things God provides, like opportunities and careers and possibilities, they're going to come. Unless your mind is set, he'll be out of focus in no time. And eventually you'll think, well, I can't see him anymore. No, you're just out of focus. Just out of focus. I tried to put on, where's Kimmy? Is Kimmy at this morning? No. I tried to put on Kimmy's glasses yesterday. They look cool. I couldn't see a thing. They couldn't allow me to focus. 
Paul says, uh, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, since then we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that entangles and hinders and let us run with perseverance the most rocked out, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the pioneer of our faith. Fix your eyes on Jesus. I love the, the psalm, Psalm 121. They say, it's possibly David. He says, I will lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? Right now, my help's coming from a water bottle. Hold on, sir. The starting point of healing and wholeness, look at him. Starting point of all things for believers, look to him. The challenges, look to him. Opportunities, money, jobs, possibilities, look to him. How do you make decisions? Well, look to him. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but by the renewing of your mind, you will be able to test and approve what his will is, his good, perfect, and pleasing will. Actually, the decision-making for believer is not a mystery. It's not this door opened as I was walking towards it. No, the enemy can open doors. He says, don't be conformed, be renewed. God speaks to us. And thirdly, and I need to move on, we get a new story, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God big revelation. You're dead. You're dead. You died. You've been hidden in Jesus. Because you're hidden in Jesus, you're close to his heartbeat. Because you're close to his heartbeat, there's life and life abundant. It says you're hidden in him. See, often people hide things, number one, because they're scared. They're fearful they're going to lose them. So to protect something, we hide it. We hide our valuables in our house. We hide them. And when, when you watch movies and the enemy's coming, they, they take people and they hide them in the bottom of buildings. They hide them. And Jesus says, I'm not going to hide you in a building. I'm not going to hide you in the church. I'm not going to hide you in wealth. I'm not going to hide you in prosperity. I'm going to hide you in me. I'm going to put you close to my heart. I'm going to hide you in my blood, in my very essence of who I am. And if someone's going to get to you, they've got to go through me. That's who our king is. See, I can tell you how to walk away from sin, and we're gonna, but unless you understand that even in that journey you are hidden in Jesus, you're on a hiding to nothing. You might be able to do it for two weeks, two months, maybe two years. But unless you understand and know and live in the reality you are hidden in Jesus, the power for that journey won't be there. Maybe some things that should die, suggestions, people's opinions. See, because it says to us we get a new story rather than let us die. Why don't let people's opinions, possessions, popularity, our past, our, our uh, some of these things, the challenges we often lived and without a reality that that is dead and I get a new life in Jesus, we keep trying to resurrect our old life. I don't want a resurrected old life. I want a new life in Jesus. I don't want a slightly better version of who I was before Jesus. I want the new one. He continues, he says, we're secure in Christ. It's hidden in Christ. It's spectacular. You see, too often we we're saying, sorry for your loss. We live with this mindset that there's loss because there's been death, but not every death leads to loss, not in Christ. 
It doesn't make sense to the world. It'll, it doesn't make sense. Why? Because he carries on. He says, when Christ, we get a new future. Verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What makes you come alive? What makes you, I ask you, what makes you come alive? Sat with a man the other day for 35 years, lived a life of homosexuality. As a 15-year-old boy, had to navigate telling his family in an era when it wasn't as sexy as it is now, wasn't as popular and politically correct as it is now. Had to navigate the pains of all of that, only very late in his life to come to know the love of Jesus. I got to sit with that man. He says, Mark, I've had to let some things die, but there's life. There's life. See, for, for surfers, it's the waves in the ocean. Photographers, it's early morning sunrises. Coffee addicts, the perfect bean. And dancers when the beat drops. <laughs> but for Paul in prison, it's the same motto he's always had. For me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. It's never changed. And let's be honest, we know Paul was Scottish. For me to live is Christ. Today is gain. That's how he would have said it. But it's an unbelievable revelation, sorry. I want to tell you, and you've got to live with the understanding, my glory days aren't behind me. I hear people talk about it. I go to my 20-year school reunion in the glory days. We talk about when we scored a try in under 17. I'm like, come alive. If that's still what I'm longing for, now, your glory days are ahead of you. And, and, and I see Beth up there in the ladies' video for the Ladies Arise conference, and it was her birthday the other day. And I, um, she's only 37, I know, but um, spectacular. She comes to my home the other night and telling me how the many fitness sessions she's doing. And she's got this zooty little blue car. I'm going, I want the zest for life that you have. Oh, half of it. Because my best days are ahead of me. And I hear Artie Kendall preach at 83 years old. He lands at 3 in the morning in Doha at 9 o'clock. I'm at a breakfast, and he's speaking, and he's preaching the gospel like it's the first time he's ever preached it. I'm going, Jesus, teach me something. Because in you, I, I love the old hymns. You know why? I don't, what, about, um, what about some of the hymns? I'm trying to remember some of the hymns right now. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home, I scarce can take it. And it's like, why do we get excited? Why did the psalmist leave that to the end of the song, to the crescendo? Because it's the most glorious part of the gospel, that this is not the glory days. The glory days are to come. When my king returns and he pulls me, and in glory I get pulled into his story, we sing about it and our souls begin to resound because that's the day we're made for. I live life now and I'm called to burn this candle out. I love that quote, and John Falconer says, why, why is everyone saving their candle for a kingdom of light? We're called to burn our light out in a kingdom of darkness. Burn it out. Let your candle get down. And when the one day your Jesus comes back, he says, you burnt your candle out for my glory. Awesome. That's why you sang so powerfully. Lastly, we get a new death. There's a, a new death. And I, I could spend hours telling, put to death. Yes, verse, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to the earthly nature. And he starts listing the list. And we can all like, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, yeah, 
all of us. But I just love the way he puts it. He takes all the time, chapter one, chapter two, the start of chapter two. He says, this is Jesus. This is who you are in Jesus. It's glorious. Now I'm going to call you to something. Put to death. I, um, I haven't put many things to death in my life. I once played golf at Royal Durban Golf Course. And I struck a drive. It hit a bird. I think it was a crane. On the neck. I was freaked out already. And from 250 meters away, okay, let me be truthful, 320 meters away, it looked <laughs> like, um, it looked dead. We arrived to the scene. It had hit it on its neck, its head was hanging, and its body is trying to walk around. I am literally freaked out. But now we can't leave this thing. And my mate's like an assassin. I don't know. He just comes alive. He's like, we've got to kill this thing. I'm like, what? He takes a seven iron. Bird lovers, just block your ears. This is rough. Takes a seven iron and proceeds to drown this poor bird that's neck is thoroughly broken. To put it out, this mystery. I'm a bad story. Some of you have totally forgotten everything I've preached. Bad, <laughs> bad story, yeah? My boys would enjoy it, though. But, um, and, and, and he puts this bird to death. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. Paul says, now that you've got Jesus, I know, hectic story, sorry. Let's cry if you're lit, one need to. But understand this. We talk about sin sometimes, especially in the modern church, and we water it down. We water its effects down. We kind of think, I've got so much Jesus, it doesn't matter if I've got some of this. I'm so holy and righteous that it doesn't matter that I've got a rising tide of brokenness in my story. It doesn't matter there's a bit of anger. The Bible says, let your gentleness be evident to all. But yes, I'm going to clap that employee who lost my money the other day. I'm going to smack that taxi driver who cut me off. The Bible says, let your gentleness be evident to all. And Paul says, the only way to do that is put it to death. Take whatever you have to and kill it. Don't play games with it. Don't entertain it. Don't feed it put it to death. I, I can't water that down for you. It was the only story I had. I apologize. But putting something to death is traumatic. See, I, I want you to live in everything verse 1 to 4 speaks about. But one of the ways we do that is by believing everything Jesus tells us and then putting to death. The challenge is the challenge. Why? And, and, and the only way to do that is fix your eyes on Jesus because the world won't understand it. Your work and your colleagues and your friends, they won't understand it. Your flesh has appetites and they get stronger. So they're saying, don't kill it. Just put, just put the drugs outside. I remember my grand, she was addicted to smoking, had terrible chest issues. And we found, I found a box of cigarettes outside her window one day. Brought it to the kitchen. She goes, no one even accuses her. And she goes, I've been framed. Who's framing you? You're 84 years old. No one's framing you. But the appetites, regardless of the fact that those cigarettes were killing her, the appetites were strong. Now you've got to put it to death. That's what Paul says. See, our sinful nature craves the brokenness of this world. Craves it. Maybe Bunty, could I have you guys up if that's all right? And we're going to be two minutes. See, the order is this. This is what Christ has done. This is who he is. 
Fix your eyes on him. Actually, not just fix your eyes, set. Set your eyes on him. Which means it's going to take a mighty big hammer to break those fixed eyes on Jesus. And then fight and win your battles. You'll never do it without your eyes on Jesus. You'll never do it without his grace. You'll never do it without his power. I'm not going to stand here and lie that your way to victory is by putting to death. No, it doesn't start there. That's why I've preached it like that. It's the last point and it's the least time because it doesn't start there. The victory is won here. The victory is won as you get a new starting point. The victory is won as you get a new focus. You get a new story. You get a new future. Put to death. Can we stand, please? And maybe we could just sing a verse together, if that's all right. We've, um, I've been preaching this series, and I absolutely love it. And every week we pray the same prayer at Tableview, and I want you to pray that prayer with me. I think it's the prayer of Colossians. I think it's the call of an apostle sitting in jail, going, take your eyes off my circumstances. If I wrote a letter from prison, I think it would say, where are you? Like if that's the letter I would write to the church. Not you're doing so well. The grace of God is on you. I've seen and I've heard stories and testimonies of the favor upon your spirit. But I want to call you because there's some things calling you other ways. So as we started out praying, our prayer in all of this is not that the church would somehow get it. That this is bad and this is bad. No, I'm telling you the only way to truly see what's not right and what's wrong is to fix our eyes on Jesus and to see the only truth, the only way to life, freedom and joy, liberty, security. You're struggling with insecurity? See Jesus. Because on your own, you're not going to get there. Because this world doesn't give it. It's not something that gets handled like, oh, here you go, security. No, everything in this world is designed to make you more insecure. But everything about Jesus tells us I've got no reason to be insecure my future in Jesus the provision for my future in Jesus I know people living their lives so fearful they'll get sick they're doing everything in their power spending every rand now on avoiding getting sick I'd rather invest in Jesus the healer who can heal my friends in hospital Zahila it brings security to my morning and I wake up in the morning not going I'm alive and I wake up in the morning and go he's alive and because he's alive I'm alive and because he's alive I can live a life that matters and counts and has authority and power and a new story so I want you to pray a prayer with me it goes like this Jesus be my Lord Jesus be my King Jesus be my everything is that all right? Yeah. And if you're saying, God, take the highest place, will you pray this with me? So we pray this morning, Jesus be my Lord. Jesus be my Lord. Okay, we're going to have to get that a bit louder. Is that all right? We want to shout this to the enemy and to the, the every insecurity. Will you say, Jesus be my Lord. Jesus be my Lord. Jesus be my King. Jesus be my King. Jesus be my everything. Jesus be my everything. Jesus be my Lord. Jesus be my Lord. Jesus be my King. Jesus be my King. Jesus be my everything. Jesus be my everything. 
I pray, Spirit of God, show us Jesus. Show us Jesus. Show me Jesus again. I want to represent, but before I can represent, I've got to know who I am. And before I can know who I am, I've got to see Jesus again. I needed to see him as a 14-year-old. I needed to see him as an insecure 18-year-old. I needed to see him as a 25-year-old. And I need to see Jesus today. And I will need to see him every day of my life. So I pray, Spirit of God, show us Jesus.